I'm reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this must never happen to you. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask that you will send your Spirit so that we will see Christ for who he is and what he has done for us clearly. Amen. Do you have, we have hints in this Matthew 16 passage of the intent of Jesus, his determination. And it's seen clearly in the use of the word must. He said, I must go to Jerusalem. Right after the transfiguration in other gospels, he said, I must go to Jerusalem. It was a death march. He knew exactly what was happening in Jerusalem. And the determination of the must gets our attention. He predicts his death and his resurrection And in Matthew, in Matthew 16, this is the first of four times that he will be predicting what's going to happen in his arrest and crucifixion. But the big idea is that Jerusalem is where death is, and he is on a march to Jerusalem. It is intentional, and he is determined. You also see an understanding of this intentionality with regard to the rebuke. Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, Jesus is the rabbi. This is unheard of. Okay, the, the students of the rabbi don't rebuke the rabbi. So again, this is Peter. And if we know anything about Peter, he's the impetuous one. So he actually says, this must never happen. Peter picked up on the intent and determination of Jesus. I must go to Jerusalem. He said, that must not happen. Now that's because Peter, like many others, had no category for a suffering and dying Messiah. Even though it's seen pretty clearly throughout scriptures, particularly Isaiah. And then Jesus ups the ante. And he stops talking only to Peter and starts referring to Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're trying to hinder my determination and mission. And Satan is working through you, Peter. And Peter doesn't understand this messianic role of suffering and dying, but he says, you're a hindrance to me. You're a speed bump on the way to where I'm going. And again, this is a way to highlight what is happening in Jerusalem. It is putting the spotlight on Jerusalem. It's foreshadowing what's going to happen when he arrives there. Crucifixion is the main point of our passage today. Now, before we dive into the passage and unpack it a little bit, uh, I want to tell you a story with my, about my little girl. I have two little girls, four and six, and they're learning the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed because they go to an Episcopal church and they're just memorizing, which is kind of beautiful. My six-year-old, learning the Apostles' Creed, she had some questions. She, she heard, he was crucified, died, and buried, and on the third day rose again. And she knows the story, but she, at dinner she wanted to unpack this a little bit. And she said, okay, Dad. What is crucified, man? I know he died on the cross, but what is crucified, that word? I said, okay, that's, that's a painful way to die. That's, the, that's when he was on the cross, nailed to the cross, hands and feet. She said, but Jesus is also God, 
but he died. Was that an accident or was that on purpose? <laughs> I mean, she's you know, diving into the sovereign plan of God for salvation over dinner, and she's just kind of you know pontificating. I said, no, he did that on purpose. He died. He suffered on purpose. And so she was putting those two things together. She said, okay, well, why did he die? Well, okay. And how do I do this in one sense? He died so death doesn't have the last say on us. We're all going to die, but that's not it. There's something more because he conquered death. He died to conquer that enemy. And I'm hoping she got a little bit of it. She said, okay. So that's why the cross is such a big deal at church, right? She sees the cross in the procession. She sees, we have a huge one in the cathedral where I serve. Uh, but she sees the cross everywhere. Sign of the cross. She just sees it. Now, before we dive in, just so you know, right before this conversation happened, right, I know, when you have the priest and the priest kid asking about the Apostles' Creed over dinner, I mean, you're thinking spectacular parenting and some type of savant child. Before she actually did this, she was wearing her underwear on her head, <laughs> looking out the leg holes, and somehow it got pulled up, and she goes, hey, who turned out the lights? So uh, uh, she, she's, she's not always sitting around asking questions about the Apostles' Creed, and I don't want to project that uh, image. But she, she got it. She was focused on the crucifixion, and she was wrestling with this question. How could something so bad or dark be something that we celebrate and give our attention to and beautify. When she sees the golden crosses walking by, why would something so bad be on purpose? And with that, let's focus on Jesus' determination. I must go to Jerusalem where I will be crucified. Jesus didn't get himself killed. He had an intention and a plan to die in our place for our sins and giving us his righteousness and rising to conquer death. John 10 says, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. But I lay it down and I have the authority to lay it down and I will rise again and I will take it up again. This is Jesus's far from divine child abuse, which is what some people look at the cross and say the father was punishing his son. This is far from divine child abuse. This was Jesus intentionally laying down his life out of his authority and power to do so, knowing he would take it back up again. Now, the fact that some don't accept the cross of Christ should come as no surprise. Now, we have beautiful versions of the cross, but crucifixion is offensive and shameful and disgusting. It was designed to torture and display and humiliate the condemned. Crosses were in open areas for public ridicule. So you could walk by and jeer the dying person who was considered the scum of the earth. Crucifixion was for those who were considered the scum of the earth and you wanted to do everything to add to the degradation and mockery and insult of that person. So here you have Jesus intentionally being defiled, obscenely mocked, beaten, stripped naked, plagued with insects, covered in dirt, sweat, and blood. And he set his face for Jerusalem, knowing what was to come. Why in the world is the cross the symbol of our faith? It's the center of it. There were less bloody and disgusting and shameful images that could have been chosen. He healed lepers. He hung out with social outcasts. 
Just this morning, one of my friends called me and said, i got to tell you this great story. He had no idea how helpful it would be. He's talking to his little girl and said, hey, Jesus did a whole bunch of miracles. And the Bible says he did more than or even mentioned in the Bible. And he said, what? She goes, well, do you know what some of those are, Daddy? I said, no, what do you think? And she said, knowing Jesus, he probably made puppies for lepers. It's a beautiful picture of what a little girl would think a miracle with Jesus would be. But there was, there, she, she said that because she, she heard stories of the Bible. She heard about Jesus hanging out with the outcasts, hanging out with people who are unwanted. He preached some wonderful sermons. He performed impressive miracles. Why the shameful cross as the center of our faith? Well, the New Testament writers tell us that something not shameful, but something beautiful happens on the cross. This shameful, humiliating, excruciating, painful, degrading death of Jesus is absolutely beautiful because they talk about the cross and there's a word that is used throughout the entire New Testament for. Jesus died for you, for us, for our sins. For our redemption. It is, is so strong. Now I can't unsee it. It's all over the place. And not because I think you're going to write notes on this. But just to feel it. Romans 5. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 John 4. 1 Peter 3. 18. 1 John 2. 2. 1 Peter 1. 20. It is all throughout. The Bible loves to say that God demonstrated his own love for us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for you. Christ died for us once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also the sins of the world. So there's this, Christ died, that's history. The New Testament does more. It says Christ died for you, for your sins. To redeem you, to ransom you. If you saw Schindler's List, you probably remember closing scene of the movie that awesomely shows Schindler as a type of redeeming figure that saves the lives of many Jews. But then he starts to weep because he didn't save more from death than he could have. And he starts going through in his cry. He, he looks at the resources he has left. And he looks at his car and said, my car was ten more people. He looks at the pin, his lapel pin, and says, this, this was two more people. I could have done more. And it's a beautiful but tragic picture of, and then he ends it with, I didn't do enough. And all of his good work is left hanging with that line. I didn't do enough. There's more I could have done. I left some on the table. Now compare that to Jesus who was determined he accomplished all he intended to do. There was no regret. There was no more left on the table. There was not one more thing he could have done. Jerusalem in the cross was him putting everything on the table. And he said the Son of Man came to serve, not be served, and to give his life as a ransom for the many. We are talking about, and it is amazing, the infinitely powerful and holy God is the one who has sent his son and it's a plan from all eternity before the creation of the world for your sake. And until we understand the enormity of our condition, the cross, 
makes little sense. The cross is God dealing with His wrath for sin and the destruction that sin has brought and the, the destruction of the sins done to us. The sins you've committed and the destruction of the sins committed against you. He's not only dealing with the guilt, but He's dealing on the cross with all of the effects of sin, your guilt and the shame of the sins done to you. The cross is reconciling us to God and it's the hope for healing for all of the effects of sin, both the guilt of the victimizer and the shame of the victim. And He died because our sin was so great that it separated us from God. And He died to heal the suffering that the world experiences. You will be marked by one of three things. You will be marked forever by what you've done. Or by the sins done against you. Or you will be marked by what Christ has done. And if you're marked by what sins you've done, you will be overwhelmed with guilt and condemnation. And if you are marked by the sins done against you, you'll likely be marked by defilement and shame. But the cross offers us something else that will mark us. And if we are marked by what has been done for us by Christ, you'll be marked by your sins being forgiven, by receiving the mercy of God, and by being considered and called a child of God. And you are called what Jesus was, pure, perfect, blameless, without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. The old is gone and the new has come. No more condemnation and no more shame. You will be marked forever by something else. And that's what the cross is for us. So while the cross is repulsive for so many, 1 Corinthians 1.8 calls it something else, the power of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. When you are beaten down, and weak. Doesn't the power of God on your behalf sound wonderful and safe? When you are alone, in shame and weary, you need to know that God exerts Himself and plan to exert Himself before your creation on your behalf. The cross is the power of God for all the ways that sin has destroyed, and it applies to all of the ways that sin destroys. And because sin and its effects are so varied, the cross applies to so much. Yes, the forgiveness of your sins is the bullseye of what's happening. But in addition to that, there is so much more. The power of God found in the cross is as far as the curse is found. So what are the ways that come to mind for you? when I talk about all of the ways that sin has caused destruction? Is it guilt from a particular sin? Or frequency of sin? Is it shame at the sin done to you? The abuse? The words that your parents said that they never should have said? Death? Anxiety? Depression bringing despair? the fractured relationships, or you look at the world and see the overwhelming experiences of violence and oppression and brokenness, the adultery, the abuse, 
The fear that paralyzes you or the addiction that imprisons you in whatever way evil has destroyed. That is the exact place where the cross is the power of God. It's not secondary. It's not peripheral. It's not kind of the tack on or add on. That is the purpose. Whatever way has come to mind, that is the place where the cross is the power of God. The cross is the power of God to share your sorrows and to bear your yoke of pain, to absorb the wrath of God and divert it from you, to show you that God takes your suffering seriously. The cross is the power of God to show you the wealth of God's love for you, to cancel the legal demands of the law against you for the forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future. The cross is the power of God to make you a child of God, to take away your condemnation and cancel your sin and to declare your pain is not forgotten by God. The cross is the power of God to call you Holy, blameless, and perfect. And those are Bible words, not me doing hyperbole. Those are the Apostle Paul's words for you in Christ. The cross is the power of God to clear your conscience, to give you eternal life, and to reconcile you to Him. It's the power of God to deal with your pain and shame and to free you from the slavery of sin. It's also the power of God to give you hope because He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He's not going to stop halfway. He started working in you, and He will see it through to the end. The cross is the power of God to show you that what others meant for evil in His creative sovereignty, He can bend evil intents into a good for you and for others and for His glory somehow. And I'm not saying that in a cheap way by any stretch. If he can turn the murder of an innocent man into the redemption of the world, whatever sin done against you, he can bend that evil into some form of blessing that he can squeeze the goodness out of that somehow. The cross is the power of God to reconcile the world to himself and to make all things new. The message of the cross is for us who have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. And if this is how you find yourself, then you need to know that the cross is the way that God demonstrates His love for you. If you know too well the depth of destruction, despair, and overwhelming sense of disgrace, then the message of the gospel is for you as it applies grace to disgrace and it redeems what sin has destroyed. But remember, Jesus' prediction was not just his death, but he has risen from the dead. And all of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ as directed to our good and for His glory. So in God's all-wise plan and all-powerful action, all of these blessings and more have been won by His Son's odious death and triumphant resurrection for God's glory, but for you and for your sake. Let's pray. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross 
and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy. Grant us to die daily to sin so that we may evermore live with him in the joy of his resurrection through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.